1: Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased to be joined this week by the gallerist James Birch, whose new book, Bacon in Moscow, describes his extraordinary attempt to take the works of Francis Bacon in the late 1980s behind the Iron Curtain, the first major exhibition of any Western artist to have happened there since, I guess, about 1917. James, welcome. Thank
0: you. Well, nice to meet you too.
1: But to start with... Your book's all about Francis Bacon going to Moscow, but he wasn't even the first choice, was he? I mean, it's a sort of a circuitous way in which it ended up being Bacon who went. Well, the
0: extraordinary event was that um, I went to a party in about um, 1985, and, uh, and, and I didn't know very many people at this party. And I bumped into this friend of mine, and he said, What are you up to? And I had this gallery, and I had sort of 10 young artists that I really wanted to sort of promote. And I, I said to him, I'm taking them to, to New York. And he said, Why take them to New York? Why don't you take them to Moscow? And I said, how do you do that? And he told me, what you have to do is go to the Soviet section of UNESCO and look out for this man called Sergei Klokov," which is exactly what I did. And so I took uh, Sergei Klokov out for lunch and some other people. And um, I showed him the sort of portfolio. In those days, you had slides and sort of odd photographs. and was very, very, not like with a computer nowadays. And I showed him the work. And he said, OK, that's, that's good. And he told me who to write to because lots of people try to have exhibitions in Moscow, and they would send them to the Ministry of Culture or somebody else, but he told me the specific person and who to write to, who was called Taya Salikov, which I did, and about six months later, nothing happened, I thought, okay, this was a bit of a waste of time, six months later, I got a telegram saying, please come to Moscow, come and see the, come to the Union of Artists, and let's discuss, and lo and behold, that's what I did. So within a couple of days, I realised that there's no way I could take these ten young artists. Who was going to pay for it?
1: They were um, the new naturists.
0: The new naturists, so they'll be naked with body paint. And I don't think that would have worked in the Soviet Union at that time. Very bourgeois. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, after after a while, I said to Sergei Klokov, I said, "Who should, you know? Who would you like to have?" And he said, "Well, it'd be great to." Um, have Andy Warhol to break the ice for Francis Bacon. And I said, well, Andy Warhol's been in London, and the whole thing was you had to do a recce with these artists because they all thought they were decadent monsters. And Andy Warhol didn't like travelling, and I rang up his uh, his manager, Fred, Fred uh, Hughes, who said, uh, "Yeah, Andy Andy does want to go. But, and I think it was Klokoff's idea that Andy Warhol was more famous than Francis Bacon, and during the course of the days, I would get invited to artist studios, and I'd say, after a few vodkas, "Who, you know, what artist from the West would you really this love to Wiley see?" This is in Moscow. This is while I was in Moscow, and they said we'd love to see Francis Bacon, and they'd go to their shelves and bring out these magazines that had been looked at for by a thousand people, and they were sort of disintegrating, and each time it was always Francis Bacon. And I said to Sergei, "Look, I mean, I know Francis Bacon. I'll ask him." And this is exactly how it happened.
1: Tell us start with, about your acquaintance with Francis Bacon, because it, it, it goes back a very long way, doesn't it?
0: That's true. Um, yeah, I, I, first, I suppose I first remember Francis Bacon when I was about uh, five or six years old. Um, he was a sort of friend of my parents. Yeah, so that's, that's, and I used to see him over the years. But then when I opened a gallery in Dean Street, which is sort of near where the, the notorious colony room was, I said to him after he came to an opening, would you like to have a show in Moscow? And he said, yes he just had an exhibition in America and the usual stuff, like lumps of meat, and he was sort of fed up with that. So he said he'd love to do, have a show in, in Moscow. next day, I, said, I wanted to check with him. I rang him up and said, Francis, are you still keen to have a show in Moscow? And he was sort of rather annoyed by this. I said, of course I am. And um, that's exactly how, that's how it happened.
1: What was your experience of Bacon's... I mean, we'll, we'll get a bit onto Moscow, but your experience of Bacon's character, because the portrait you paint of him, I mean, I know a lot of people... You know, there are anecdotes about Francis Bacon as sort of passing him in the French house of the Colony Room Club and being told to F off, and that he was sort of an aggressive, spiteful, difficult character. You painted a much, much more sympathetic portrait of him. Well,
0: I mean, the strange thing, he was, ne- he was never, I mean, I've seen his tongue being quite vicious, uh, but he was never rude to me. He was always extremely charming, always interested in what I was up to, always interesting, and that's it's a completely different Francis than, than most people portray.
1: Do do you think the sort of rudeness was a was a way of keeping people at bay or?
0: Yeah, defense mechanism to keep people at bay, certainly.
1: Yeah. Now, why do you think I mean, I'm I'm interested to get the sort of background of this. Why do you think all these Russian artists were so keen on bacon? What was it that that sort of, you know, (laughs) spoke to them? About Bacon's I work. suppose.
0: Seeing his pictures, which is sort of, you know, the horrors of humanity, it's rather similar to what was going on in Moscow. And but those paintings he did of sort of bureaucrats, that's exactly very, very much what the Soviet Union was going through at that time.
1: And were his paintings circulating very freely there in, in, in reproduction?
0: No, I mean, this was only probably when somebody left an art magazine behind and, and the, the artist kept it. I mean, the people kept a lot of things. that were sort of the, the Westerners had been travelled there and just sort of discarded.
1: When you, when you went round, you went on this sort of slightly dismaying tour. I mean, try and give us a sense now, because obviously Russia is deeply plugged into the international art scene now, but it was like a sort of coelacanth, wasn't it? I mean, the, the art you were seeing, what was it like? What sort of art scene was there?
0: It was appalling art, really. I mean, it had it was sort of a, it was it was totally flat. It had no feeling. It was produ- mass produced by um, if they did one painting, they'd do it about ten times as copies. And it was all the art was looked after by the Union of Artists. And if you were slightly under the radar, you you, you couldn't be remember the Union of Artists. So therefore, you probably weren't given a studio or an exhibition. Uh,
1: and it was the Union of Artists you sort of had to negotiate with, wasn't it? That, that's right. And how did, that, how did that work? I mean, when you started to get this idea, you got the okay from Francis. What were the... Because there's a lot of sort of nitty-gritty in the book about how you, how you tried to keep all these plates spinning.
0: Well, well, through Sergei Klokov, I met this man called Misha Mahave, who was a... He was, his title, which was brilliant, was for Minister of Propaganda and Art Promotion for the Union of Artists of the USSR. And he was really <laughs> the person who could... We
1: don't make job titles like that anymore.
0: exactly. And he was actually really brilliant; he knew exactly how to work through the whole Soviet system and all that go through the bureaucrats and get things done so that was really him who sort of after initially Klockoff sort of instigated it, then he took over and once the
1: incredible
0: thing is once it's written in stone there it, it doesn't it doesn't it has to happen it doesn't stop it doesn't get postponed
1: right so you, you have a kind of implacable but once it's on the move, unstoppable bureaucratic machine exactly. on one side of this. But things were very different in London, weren't they?
0: Well, that's true, because, I mean, Francis is quite a, was quite a difficult man. And at any stage, he could just suddenly say, no, I don't want to do it. Hence, well, he was desperate to come to Moscow, in so much in the sense that he bought himself a walkman and was learning Russian on a cassette. And... Uh, and at the last minute, he, I think his, he, he said he had an asthma attack. And it really, I mean, if he had an asthma attack out there, he was quite nervous about it, even though at that time his doctor was going to come with him with a, some oxygen tanks in case that happened.
1: Why was he so keen on the... You, you, you seem to be slightly surprised because you were t- taking your life in your hands saying, you know, how do I introduce this as a topic of conversation, how do I pitch it to him? And you seem, at least from the count in the book... To have been quite surprised when Bacon he went, oh, yes, I'd love to go to Moscow.
0: Well, because he, he said to me that in the 20s, he met two Russian sailors in Berlin who were very good to him, whatever that means. And, um, and obviously he liked Eisenstein's uh, films, um, you know, Strike and Battleship Potemkin.
1: As, as he writes about Potemkin's imagery actually infected his, his screaming popes, didn't it? That's right.
0: It's because of the nurse having been shot falling down the steps in Odessa.
1: And once he was, was into this, you, you know, this idea drew you right into Bacon's inner circle, didn't it?
0: Exactly. And and his inner circle, well, his, his companion was John Edwards, who was this sort of, um, who, who, who was incredibly dyslexic, who couldn't read or write, but Francis adored him and ended up being his companion and heir.
1: And he was a, he was a boyfriend, but not a boyfriend.
0: He was just a companion rather than a boyfriend.
1: Yeah. And actually, there's a sort of sidebar here. You're very generous, generally, about John Edwards, and you've got quite good cause not to be. There's this moment when Francis says, let me give you a painting.
0: I know, yes. (laughs) We were in this... um caviar restaurant doesn't exist anymore in Bruton Place called Caspier Caviar House, I think it was called. And um, France said, oh, James, I'd like to give you a painting. And John Edwards said, oh, James doesn't need a painting. I'm giving him three lithographs. And I was sort of too shy to say, well, I'd love to have a painting as well. But anyway, that never happened.
1: You think that was him guarding his inheritance?
0: That's probably quite true.
1: (laughs) Incidentally, also, you drop in as a sort of side note early on. You know, while you were living in London and running your gallery, you said oh you my, my flatmate at the time was Nico of Velvet Underground fame how did that come about
0: um I was living with this American uh, woman who knew Nico in New York and we went to go and see her play know, um, somewhere and Nico came up to Mary and said oh hi Mary oh, I had nowhere to live and so Mary looked at me well let's let's have Nico move in and so she moved into my spare room good
1: god did I, I mean was this at the the depths of her her drug abuse I mean
0: well, I think I'm afraid to say she did come to London because uh, it was easier to get drugs here than in New York.
1: Right. Sorry, I went off topic there momentarily. Let's go back back to Bacon in Moscow. Francis obviously was very keen to go. You had all these machinations with the, you know, British the British Council at this end to try and get it, and and Bacon's gallery to try and get it paid for. But at the other end, there's this entrancing character of Sergei Klokov. You've already mentioned. I mean. What was Klokov like? What was the sort of role he played? Because he's he's sort of slightly exciting, charismatic, faintly menacing figure at times.
0: And he was totally menacing. Um, but I mean, I mean, he was very high up in the sort of Soviet aristocracy. I mean, there's a, there was a photograph of him with Yuri Gagarin as a young man. Um, and if you think about it, I mean, Yuri Gagarin in about 1961 was probably the most famous man in the world, having gone round the moon. And so Klockhoff, who was sort of... When I went to the Soviet section of UNESCO in, in Paris, um, I asked for Sergei Klockhoff. So there was this man with a sort of square beard, square suit, which was Pierre Cardin, which he always told me because he was friends with Pierre Cardin, and a sort of square man bag, which always had a clink, because there was obviously a bottle of vodka in there. He was, I mean, charming. and um, But he did have this menacing side to him. And he was, you know, KGB trained in Tashkent, and he did go into Afghanistan, and he did of flamethrower houses, and he'd, I remember him telling me that all he could remember was the, s- the smell of burning flesh and sand on his lips.
1: That's quite an extraordinary kind of revelation for him to make. I mean, he'd gone he'd he'd gone around through Afghanistan throwing villages. Yeah. But this was sort of thrown into an otherwise relatively straightforward conversation, wasn't it?
0: it, it, it well, this is, this is the funny thing is that they, suddenly he would come out with these aspects And uh, that was one of them. I was absolutely shocked.
1: Was that intended to intimidate, do you think? Maybe
0: a touch of that.
1: And what was his role? What was his angle on all this? Because obviously he was very instrumental in, you know, getting you in touch with the right people and persuading the nomenclatura to to take on this exhibition. What was in it for him?
0: I think he realised that he would probably get a lot of press in the West, and and also he might get something out of it, which in fact he, he, Francis gave him a, a painting, which he said that he said that he which John Edwards insisted that he had because Klokoff said if I was ever given a painting just like that to John Edwards I'd I'd leave it to the Pruskin Museum, and of course um, as soon as he got the painting he sold it.
1: Yes, that's the only point at which he he really comes across as slightly frightened in the coda to this. That Because when Taya Selikov, head of the Union of Artists, came over to London and there
0: was a celebrated lunch for Francis Bacon, Klockoff rang me the night before to say, whatever whatever happens, don't let Francis say that he, I, he, he had been given a painting, because otherwise he would have ended up in Siberia. And luckily, Francis uh, didn't simply mention anything about that, when Taya Salikov always said, I'd love, the Union of Artists would love to have one of your paintings, Francis. And France said, well, you censored the ones that I'd like to give you, so um, you can't have one.
1: Yes. Um, when, on your first trips to Moscow, what was your impression of the place? I mean, it's changed a lot now, obviously. Well, it's, um, I
0: suppose this was um, July
1: 1986.
0: And I never really thought about Moscow. I never thought about going there. But to actually go there, these wide streets... I mean, it was quite hot. So there was this terrible smell of the sort of benzene, which is the sort of inferior petrol they use, Russian cigarettes and body odour.
1: And Russian artists, I mean, you, you capture this moment of transformation because around the time of the Bacon exhibition going on, the suddenly Sotheby's is doing a sale. That's right. And that, and that was probably a very good motive for the, uh, for the
0: exhibition to happen because suddenly a lot of Western... Buyers, collectors came over for this Sotheby's auction and it did incredibly well. They didn't expect it to do so well.
1: When you talk about this, I mean, what, what happened in the Sotheby's auction seems to be very kind of interesting and telling, in that the Russians are sort of surprised by what sells. I
0: think, well, I think Russians were amazed what sold, because, in fact, most of them, if if they sold only anything to the West, they would tr- trade it for a camera or, in those days, a sort of inferior computer or those large sort of PCs. And so when, when I think it was Grisha Bruskin's painting went for 400,000, I mean, there was, you know, people found that extraordinary.
1: Yes, there's a lovely story about how he, he drops his glasses in astonishment. Yeah, <laughs> exactly,
0: and, of course, then he, he left the Soviet Union ended up in New York, where he still is.
1: Yeah. The question of what paintings went in, you, you've alluded to this before, but you said, you know, oh, you, I can't give you that painting because you've censored it. How did you make the selection for the show? What sort of negotiations surrounded that, what you were going to hang? Well,
0: what happened, basically, was that was Francis's choice and his choice of pictures, which also, were they available and would people mind the collectors mind it going to behind the iron curtain because we're still that was still the cold war was going on and so it was amazing to have what it was 44 pictures to go though
1: what, what was the, the censorship issue
0: but there was uh there was one painting of two men rolling around on a bed and that was the one that was censored but even though uh Gary at the time that made a speech saying oh they were just having a wrestling they weren't there wasn't any sexual activity
1: but it's not, not enough to satisfy the Russian censors. And how did they get the paintings there? I mean, it sounds like there was a sort of military convoy. That... There was a military convoy. It went, they went by um, by lorry
0: uh, across through Poland and into Russia. And had, there was a sort of armed guard, Could take it all the way to the Central House of Artists, where, where the exhibition was.
1: And this, this Russia at the time, I mean, one thing that seems to unite Russia and and the Soho of Francis Bacon is this kind of absolutely extraordinary amount of drink?
0: <laughs> well, that, well, I suppose with with Soho, that was, with Francis, that was champagne, and in Russia it was um, vodka. And even though Gorbachev realised that the country was sort of a completely alcoholic, he tried to stop it, but uh, the price of vodka up. But, and there, there used to be posters for saying "peace in the world," but now there are anti-vodka
1: posters. And what was? The I mean, did you manage to kind of negotiate that all right? I mean, were you sort of drunk all the time while this was happening?
0: Um, not, not, not necessarily drunk all the time. There was, I mean, it was sort of um, there was just these odd moments, and everybody was sort of quite on the case afterwards.
1: Yeah. What were the political manoeuvres in the background? Because, as you say, somewhere in the book, you know, you say I, I, I was only starting to become aware of something. Klockoff was extremely alert to which is the shift, you know, Peristorica, We were at the kind of fag end of the Afghan war. You know, how did that affect what you were doing and did it, did it make it easier? Did it make it harder? What was...
0: I think certainly with Glasnost and Peristorica it made it um, easier. And what I didn't realise was that, and this was years later, I met a Polish artist who was with Warsaw uh, at that time and he heard whisperings that Francis Bacon was having an exhibition in Moscow and he thought, wow, things are going to change. So you know, it was a sort of bellwether.
1: When you actually went to Moscow, Bacon, in the end, didn't come. Yeah. And can you tell me a little about the manoeuvrings that prevented him? Because as you say, he was very keen. He'd got his Walkman. He'd got his Russian language lessons. At least if I read your book rightly, it was sort of slightly spitefully torpedoed by David Sylvester. It was torpedoed
0: by David Sylvester, and plus the fact the British Council obviously was involved wanted Francis to go and have you know lunch with the ambassador, tea with somebody else, and all these dignities, which Francis really didn't want to do. He wanted to go to the show, go to his opening, and then catch a train to what was then Leningrad, Saint Petersburg, to see the Rembrandts in the Hermitage.
1: What did Sylvester do to to put the knife in, and why did he do it? I think he was uh,
0: Sylvester was upset that he hadn't he wasn't writing for the catalogue, so it was. Um, Grey Guy was writing in the, for the catalogue. So he was a bit sort of peeved by that. So he said to Francis, you know, you're a very rich man, you might get kidnapped or you might, 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 you might get blown up on the train or, or something like that.
1: And, uh, and, he, and he had Francis' ear enough for that to work, you think? Exactly. And, and, and that made... Well, Francis was quite
0: at quite age, and he'd, so that made him nervous, and quite rightly so. And that Michael had easily brought on an asthma attack.
1: Did you think you, you, it was worth trying to talk him round? Because, I mean, obviously having the exhibition was a triumph in itself but having bacon actually there would have been
0: oh been bacon being there would be even better but I mean, it, was, it was very sad and i didn't i didn't want to uh, turn it round because he could just say no but when i went to when i went to go and pick <coughs> john edwards up to catch the british airways flight to moscow i mean he had his bags packed by the door so he could have come but i didn't know at that time that he could have come on the plane and we would have instantly got him an immediate visa at the, uh, at the Moscow airport.
1: Yeah. Now, there's a slightly pointed bit that at, at various points in this, it looks like your contribution is being sort of gently pushed to one side. You know, you, you're not getting the credit for what it was essentially your idea. Uh, why was that and how did that happen? Well, I, I think...
0: It's basically the, the the British Council wanted to come back into Moscow as as the thaw was happening, and uh, this was a perfect excuse for them to come in. And so I was sort of side, sidelined.
1: Is it is a book in part to sort of, you know, get that record straightened? No, I think it, it, basically
0: the book is really sort of the idea that this extraordinary thing happened at, at a certain time, which was a very small amount of years before before the Soviet Union opened up to Russia, and now it's sort of
1: going back to what it was before. Yeah. Also, you you did nearly come back with a wife. There's this extraordinary kind of romantic subplot that goes on here. Yes. Well, Elena Huchikova, who I met with
0: Klockoff in Paris. Every time I went to Moscow, she was still there. And um, and I said to Klokov, you know, what what'd she do? And he said, she's a high priestess of fashion, but she's washed up here. She needs to come to the West. So in those days, to get somebody out of the Soviet Union, you got married to them. But then again, with Perestroika and Glasnost, I could sponsor her to come out. So I brought her out and um, was sort of romantically involved with her.
1: And um, who was Elena? What was her, What was her character? She was this
0: stunning uh, Soviet model slash designer. And um, I said, well, I remember asking her, I said, what did your father do? And she said, oh, he invented the Hutikova washing machine. And I thought, oh, that's very odd. And again, years later, because sadly she died, I said to a friend of hers, you know, what was the Hutikova washing machine like? Uh, you know, her father was high up in the military, which most people were.
1: was right. that the same way that... that- People in the KGB would always say, I'm an engineer. Exactly. (laughs) And what was the reaction in Russia to this Bacon exhibition? What were, you know, you were there, you saw, I mean, I think you describe on the first day, you know, the queues forming. The queue, there was,
0: well, I think 400,000 people went to see the exhibition, which was on roughly six weeks. And that was, I mean, I mean, I found it absolutely extraordinary that here, if you know, you have a bacon painting in the Tate Gallery, somebody might look at it for five minutes. But these Russians, there was like a sort of thread of light to them that to suddenly see these paintings that they only seen in you know tatty dog-eared magazines, to actually see them. This, I was amazed to see this man looking at a painting for four and a half hours, absorbing Western culture that
1: they'd never experienced before. And do you think that um that, I mean, how much did it open up for what was to come afterwards? Did well, after that, I- I- encouraged the Russian authorities to to let more of this stuff happen.
0: I think, um, well, because what happened after the opening of Francis Bacon, I proposed um, Gilbert and George, and they had a show two years later. So, and that was really that was 1990. So by 91, the whole Soviet system collapsed. So it was completely different all game.
1: Yeah, and your. Um, do you now go back to Russia? I mean, if you're still working as a gallerist, you're working in the art world, presumably Moscow's, you know, a whole different ball game now. I mean, have you watched that change?
0: I've watched it change, but I, have, I haven't been back to Russia since I think it was um, 1995, um, when things were getting a quite... It was quite fearful on the streets and the sort of mafiosa and everything else. So I, had, I stopped going back and I, could, I couldn't do any exhibitions anymore because by that time they wanted... or X amount of dollars for X amount of square feet for a gallery space. And then also individual galleries opened up, like the Garage and uh, various other um, more commercial galleries.
1: But doesn't um, Abramovich's wife, Dasha, run a... That's right, she runs the the Garage. And is your sense that, that Russian attitudes to art, that Russia's native art has, if you like, caught up?
0: Or, uh, well there's a, there's a couple of artists that well again they've actually left Russia to come to the west and I, yes it's beginning to catch up but I still it's, I think it's a long way away to, to totally ca- catch up to say like this country where practically every other person's an artist nowadays yes right, James
1: Birch thank you very much indeed for your time
0: well, thank you